We continue on in Titus, and we've worked through Titus 2, 1 through 10. Took a little longer than I expected. Uh, but now, on to the grace of God, Titus 2, 11 through 15. I've shared this story before, but I have a friend that's in the computer programming development business. And, and years ago, I rented an office uh, from him. And around that time, Nicaragua Baptist Missions needed, uh, needed a website, needed an updated website. And he ended up building uh, the website for the mission. And, and he'd done other jobs uh, for me. And so he came to me wondering who should get the bill. Should I get the bill? A company get the bill? The mission get the bill? And I told him, in my mind, jokingly, uh, just build Jesus. I said, he died on the cross for your sins. He redeemed you from eternal death. But if you think you should charge for mission work, then you'll go right ahead. Um, he didn't take it as jokingly as I intended. Um, he wasn't as pleased. And, and being myself, I just kept the pun going. And so I just walked away to my office, maybe, and acted like this was a done deal. And we did pay him in the end. Um, I might have tortured him for an hour or two, but uh, we paid for the website. We weren't trying to force a donation. But I share that story because not because you're trying to get a free gift out of something, but because at a very real level, it hit home to my friend. And that's what I realized when I, when I was reading his face later on or thinking about it. Even though I was doing something in a joking way, what hit him was this idea that what God has done for him, someone would actually bring up and say, why wouldn't you give to God? It warranted a drastic and real life response. And I'm not preaching this morning on the grace of God so everyone gives free websites to mission organizations. I'm hoping that the weight of the matter is felt by us because a real life transaction is connected with the reality of Christ's sacrifice and redemption because Christ's work on the cross is supposed to change everything for us. And that's what Paul is making clear uh, to the church here. Uh, it's supposed to change life. It's supposed to alter what we do. It's supposed to interfere, if, if you want to use that word, in our hobbies and in our finances and in our time. It's supposed to make a difference. Uh, sadly, too often it barely alters Sunday morning. Uh, the truth is Christ's call to all of us which we went through verses 1 through 10 to be spiritually functional, which is all of that, that tie-out, right? All the different levels and ages and groupings in the church is tied to the fact that he saved us, that he was the perfect image of the grace of God, come to earth to buy us back from sin, eternal death, that we chose. And so everything we've talked about, the function of that, now is, Paul is making very clear to us, this is why in the world you would do this. And so he moves from really the practical application of verses 1 through 10 to the theology that drives that application, which if you read through Paul's different letters, you'll find that typically he does the reverse. He gives the theology, and then he gives the practical application. You take Romans, for example, you've got 11 chapters, and then 12, it turns the corner into more practical application. All through his letters, you're going to see theology and then practical application. Here in Titus, he's giving all these things that a healthy church must do, very practical, and now he, he has a very sharp punch on the theology that comes behind it, because he wants us to understand the implication of God's grace 
that God's grace is not neutral to us, that it's not just some casual thing, it's not just a toy that we play with, but instead it's something that will alter the life of a believer. Because grace was a part of God's plan from before time began. It's a grace that alters our eternal destiny. And so Paul wants to make abundantly clear as he begins this section that his grace brings salvation. He starts, right, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And he's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth. He is the embodiment of God's grace to humanity. And when he came, it came with saving power, grace bestowed on humanity. But note this, and scripture talks about it, to those that hated him, to those that were against him. And so we have a grace that becomes unfathomable to our minds. If you really think about grace in this context that God bestowed on us, his enemies, his gift of salvation. The Greeks understood grace. The word was, was clear in their culture. They understood grace as something freely given. There was no expectation of return. It was born of the bounty and free heartedness of the giver. But their grace was always conferred to their friends. Their grace was always extended to someone that was already part of your family, connected to you, who brought benefit to you. Even though the grace extended didn't have a reciprocal response, not like you have to pay me for this, what I'm doing. It was always to their friends, not their enemies. God's grace, therefore, rises to heights unknown by humankind. We can't quite grasp the depth of God's grace. See, the reality is this. We deserve punishment. Yet our rightful judge stepped down to redeem us. His first coming to earth, his incarnation, his life, subsequent death and resurrection made possible our salvation, saved from the penalty of sin. Because as we know, the wages of sin is death. And we forget that. We forget that a debt has been forgiven. As believers, though, we are his children And he's paid our debt for us. A grace, as one commentator explains from the Greek gamer, that brought salvation to all classes of men, even slaves, enabling all to live true lives. Uh, John MacArthur notes this, Without any exception, God calls all men to faith in his son, Jesus Christ, whose atoning sacrifice was more than sufficient to cover every sin that has been or ever will be committed. The abundance of God's grace more than exceeds the whole of man's depravity. So it might be said that Christ's atonement is sufficient for the whole world, but is efficient only for those who believe. Christ came, and he's appeared to all men. His salvation is open to all. The magnitude of our Savior's grace, his being and coming as the embodiment of God's grace, needs to be real to our everyday lives. So as we look at Christ and his coming and and understand the implication behind that, because the whole point of this, and we're going to get to this idea of glory later on, and it says the glorious appearing, which really is the appearing of glory, because Christ is the embodiment of God's grace. And when he returns a second time, he's the embodiment of God's glory. And so he's, he's, he's those two things in and by definition. But as we grapple with this idea that his grace brings salvation, we are to be confronted with this reality that it should be a part of everyday thinking. 
We must recognize the unfathomable nature of his grace, a grace that really we cannot quite grasp. And if you have a grip on his grace, then I would say you've already lost it. You need to understand the magnitude of what he's done. But this grace brings an eternal benefit to us. So I ask this question as we start, do we as believers feel daily the magnitude of our Savior's grace? Do we feel the weight, not in a negative way, but in a real conscious way of what Christ has done for us, or has it become a bit common to us? Has it become nothing? Has it become something from the past in your mind? And and Paul is driving to a point, and, and the reality is this, if we're to be a healthy church, then his grace, his salvation, what he's done for us, the fact that we were under eternal death, that he has redeemed us from that, is an everyday thought in our mind. Does it influence your day, your life, your details? And by details, I mean your career, your hobbies, what you give your time to, because that's what Paul's driving to. His grace brings salvation, and that Salvation brings a response from us because the reality is, and this is verse 12, his grace demands change. What does his grace do? And it's all speaking of his grace. It's teaching us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, which this those three things are, are a bit of a repeat of what we've gone through in verse 1 through 10. He's summarizing it here. God's grace, though, and understand this, Christ coming to earth, the embodiment of what God has planned since eternity past for us, accomplished through his son who came to earth. So the appearing that Paul is talking about is God's grace that's been planned came to earth in a physical form. It's there for us to see, instructs us. It's not some presentation we watch. It's not some distant thing. it's, It's to change our life. It guides us. It counsels us. And it leads in a very specific direction. His grace affects our behavior and demands clear responses. Regarding some things, an adamant no is supposed to come from us. To other things, a living yes. And so Paul begins with what is a prerequisite to the yes, and that's the adamant no. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust. And the word denying... We, we hear it a certain way. In Greek, it's, it's literally this, say no to. Say no to ungodliness and say no to worldly lust. And those two words come together. One is the root of it all. And the second, worldly lust, is the real manifestations of what ungodliness will look like in a life. Ungodliness is a lack of true reverence for and devotion to God and addresses both your thoughts and actions. This is the root principle or the foundation upon which worldliness is built. Why do we follow worldly desires? And this is a a gut punch, I think it was to me. It's because we're ungodly. That's why we follow worldly desires. And then it says, you're not to, or you're to say no to worldly desires, which then are the concrete manifestations of ungodliness. So we no longer sugarcoat where our thoughts go. Here are the particulars, right? The sins we may not have committed, but still desire to do so. Don't miss 
that he didn't say, say no to worldly actions. He said, say no to worldly desires. In other words, Paul has gotten to the thought life here. He's getting very specific. You are to say no to ungodliness, which is the root principle, this idea that I am going to have reverence for myself. I worship myself. I'll do what pleases me. This is the world's response, right? What they do, what you see from the world, is rooted in ungodliness, this idea that we don't reverence God and his law, and so therefore we do what we want. That goes in in a vast array of directions, right? We see the perversion of our world, but it, it runs the gamut there. And then this idea of worldly desires, and Paul understands they probably aren't doing worldly actions, but they're thinking about it. And let's go back to the idea of denying it. Say no to worldly thoughts, springing from the root of ungodliness, which is a lack of reverence for God in either thought or action. And Paul is making clear his, and more importantly, God's expectation is that we give an adamant no to the root principle of ungodliness, to saying yes to myself, to giving myself permission that this is okay, this is fine for me, this is how I believe, this is how I interpret it, all those things, ungodliness, lacking true reverence for God, and then saying no to worldly desires, and let's put it in a context that we understand, worldly thinking. We are to confront or renounce that. So when a worldly desire comes in your mind, and Paul is not so naive as to think that they wouldn't, you are to say no to it. How in the world do you do that? You better confront it in your mind. How many of us have a worldly desire pop in our mind and we mull over it, we we chew on it, we allow it to have space and time in our thinking? And Paul is saying to be actively saying no to that, that as that thought comes in your mind, you are saying, no, I'm not going to think this, and you replace it with something else. We deny it time, energy, passion, etc., whatever it takes to starve it out. We say no to it. And that becomes a critical first step to doing what a believer should do. The no precedes the yes. The structure of the sentence, and I'm sorry to constantly going back to Greek grammar, but it's important here. The Greek grammatical structure says you can't say yes without the no. If you've ever been to college and you look at taking some neat course and then you realize there's three prerequisites to take the course, which means you have to take all these other courses to be able to take this neat course that you want to take. And my decision was, forget it, if you don't need to do that. But the idea is this, you have to say no as a prerequisite, as a condition to be able to give a living yes. And so you say an adamant no to the ungodliness, the root issue. You say no to the worldly lusts, the worldly desires, to break it down, the worldly thoughts that pop into our mind. And then we're able to give a living yes because there is something that must be done. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And and I hope I'm making the one point, driving it clear that God's grace demands a change and that change is going to affect how you live your life. Soberly, we've talked about it. It's a requirement in every age bracket. And that's to be self-controlled and thoughtful As you watch these three unfold, soberly, righteously, and godly, they're going to deal with your relationship or how you act yourself. 
And then righteously, which is upright, the idea of being upright in your manner, integrity, honesty, is how you react with the world around you. And godly is going to be how you react or your relationship with God. And so you're seeing a three-tiered, the words were chosen on purpose. It's to show us in every type of relationship how we are supposed to respond. So when Paul speaks of being, acting soberly, it is you being self-controlled and thoughtful. Are you in control of the issues of life? And here's the point. Are you balanced, not allowing the circumstances of life to distract or affect biblical discernment? That's what self-control is, right? We're, 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 we're able to discern biblically how we are supposed to act in this world. Then from there, we're called to live righteously. And as I mentioned, upright, integrity, honesty, honorably. These are all the, the roots to that word that's there. Sometimes we see righteously and immediately we throw it in the theory category and we throw it in the religious category and we forget that it means dealing in a right way with people. And this key focus here is on our relationship to others. We live according to God's divine standard, doing what is right without pause. Now understand the nuance that is there. See, sometimes we hesitate to do what's right. Sometimes we waver to do what's right. Sometimes we weigh, doing right will cost me X, back and forth. See, if you're upright, that's not something that goes to your mind which will change how you interact with humanity. This biblical interaction now becomes then a solid foundation of our testimony for him. As the issues of life are balanced through Scripture, as God's Word creates the the formula, so to speak, on how we are going to react to life, what life throws at us, and then this idea of being righteous, living upright, now God is saying you are going to respond these situations. Now as you interact and respond to other people, very individual, very personal, it's going to change your answer. Doing right is, is done without pause. And that's going to now be the testimony you have towards other people because the goal is to point to Christ, to serve his kingdom purpose, to clearly be godly. And if ungodliness is lack of reverence, then godly or godliness, is to be in reverent adoration, praise, and worship of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you can see, this is clearly dealing with our relationship to God. As his redeemed, we are no longer enemies of him. Instead, we are his children. People should notice that. That should be obvious. That should be something that's there. This is now our relationship to him. We don't run from him. We don't blaspheme him or ignore him. Our focus is instead to grow in him, know him better, live for him and his glory. Say no to irreverent behavior, which I want to make sure we understand it, is when you worship yourself above God, when you choose self, when you choose your way above God's way, ungodliness. Say no to worldly thoughts that pop in your brain so that you can be self-controlled, biblically controlled, sober, that you can be righteous in your reactions and actions with others, that it's how Christ would want you to act towards them as a testimony, and that your relationship with Christ is growing godly. All of this to be done now. In this present age or in the present age is one word, noon, which means now. Do it now.
And the whole idea is this, whatever time you live, which, by the way, is for you right now. You're alive, so right now he's saying, you are to be a living testimony to what Christ has done in and upon your life. For every generation, to those on Crete, to those in the 1800s, 1900s, whenever you want to be, and for us right now, because God's grace demands a change, a change that points consistently to him and his glorious salvation. The question for us, though, is, is that change apparent? Are we living that change with our adamant no and living yes as we should? Do we look like grace has changed us? Do we say no to the world's rejection of God? That's ungodliness, irreverent response or approach, anything that doesn't reverence him, put him up, elevate, worship his glory, pointing to him? Do we say no to worldly desires, thoughts? Are we in every aspect of relationship from in ourself towards other people and towards God, growing in him an obvious change for him? Because as we live for him, we recognize and rejoice that his grace expects his return. Verse 13 As you're doing this, and this gives you a a mindset that we're supposed to have, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And though the English translation makes it appear as two things, it is speaking of one. It's the blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of God, again, embodied in Jesus Christ, just as the grace was. Then it's followed by a clear expression of, of Jesus' deity, the Greek literally reads this at the end, the glory of the great God and Savior of us, Jesus Christ, which is a lot clearer than our English translation is giving it to us. And this is the reality. Christ is going to return. He returns as God's glory. And he is, and this is one of the more emphatic statements in the New Testament of Christ's deity. He is God. He is Savior. And that's why the Greek literally reads the glory of the great God and Savior of us. And in our grammar, we would put a comma, Jesus Christ. And so we look here, and Paul is pointing to the future reality of our Savior's triumphant and glorious return, letting us know for whom we expectantly look. I didn't write this in my notes, but here's a great question. Who are you looking for? And then dig into your politics and your life and who you pin your hopes on and all those things that tie into there. And look, I'm, I'm into politics, kind of, because I have a kid that's interested in it. But I'm saying that because as believers, we need to be vested there. But who are you looking for? And we have one that we are expectantly looking for and actually know is coming. And that's Jesus Christ. Everyone else, we have no idea what's going to unfold there. But we as believers are supposed to be expectantly looking for him. And then in a very direct statement, Paul is proclaiming Christ as God, something we are to adamantly do as well. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't a cool guy. He wasn't just all about love. He is God and his holiness and his righteousness and his wrath and his right to judge and the right to demand. He is God. And as I mentioned, this is actually one of the few very direct statements listed clearly in the New Testament. And by the way, 
This is one of the main charges that infuriated the Pharisees and that they leveled against Jesus while he was on earth. If you read in the Gospel of John and walk through it repetitively, John says, and the Pharisees were looking, he doesn't use the word murder, but it's murder Christ because he made himself equal to God. Christ was clear when he was here that he is God. And Paul is making it very clear to Titus that you must know that he is God. And then I put here as our action step, what are we looking for? Do we have fixed in our mind the glory of Christ's return? Is that your deepest and let's be honest, secured hope? Is that where your mind and and heart is set on? And then are we confidently proclaiming him as our God and our Savior? How are we responding to Jesus Christ? So the one tract I I mentioned to you that we'll be using uh, heavily, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that Jesus is? That's actually a question that all humanity needs to answer. Who's Jesus Christ? And you got ranges of answers throughout history, but basically people are either rejecting him as God and Savior or they're believing on him. And Paul is confronting that in, in in a healthy church and in a healthy believer They are adamant about the deity of Jesus Christ in all of its implications. His eternal existence, his holiness, wrath, judgment. I listed them all before, getting a grip on that. Paul now continues looking in more detail at what Jesus accomplished for us. So he says he brought salvation, and then now he looks at him accomplishing for us redemption, and then what his redemptive purpose is, making clear that his grace drives sanctification. And Paul likes to repeat himself a little bit too, right? His grace demands change. And now he, he drives to the depth of what Christ is going to accomplish in us. It says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And this is the redemptive purpose. And purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. His grace, his sacrifice of himself, broke the ownership that sin has over us, and then the punishment of sin in store for us. And there's two different things. The wages of sin is death, but without Christ, you are owned by sin. You have no other master but sin. Everyone that stares out irreverent of God and thinking, I'm the master of my own identity, my own life, they're the master of nothing. They serve a very wicked master and Lord. And that's sin and that's Satan. And he's released us. He's redeemed us because that's what the word means from the captivity of sin. He's bought us out of that slavery so that we can live for his purpose, his way. Christ has never apologized for the demands he makes upon his children. It is for his kingdom and his purpose and it's done his way. We're called to be pure. Christ has cleansed us from sin, and that should be evident in lives that are morally and spiritually clean. Purified from sin and its imprint. We don't bear the brand of sin anymore. We are to bear the brand of Christ. We are to replicate our master, and he is our master. We're called to be his. Christ has bought us, and to him we belong. We are to be his unique set-apart people marked out for him alone. And then we're called to be fruitful. 
Christ has enabled us to bear fruit for his kingdom, an enabling that we are to do enthusiastically. Well, I'm a Christian. I've got to do this. This is how I have to live. Well, listen, you know, I'm a Christian. I can't do that. You ever said that or thought that? That's not zealous for good works. That's you saying, boo-hoo, I hate my life. I wish I could do something else. The word literally means this, zealots for good deeds. Not just zealous to do good deeds, but you're now a zealot, which, by the way, is a fanatic, which is a crazy. The zealots during that time wanted to overthrow the Romans by any means necessary, even if they murdered them on the street. That's what a zealot was. Anything for good works. And you're not to just be zealous, but you're to be a zealot. That's the meaning in Greek, for good deeds. The proper response to God's grace is seen in our active fulfillment to be pure, to be his, to be fruitful. He is working and completing us in him. He promises us that. That is sanctifying us, and that should be evident in our lives. His grace drives sanctification in him. But is that something obviously seen from your life? Because that's what Paul is driving to. He's completing the work in us as he talks to the church, but then do you look like his children? Does it look like it's being taken care of? Because he's not the one failing. It's us. And so Paul now closes this exhortation with a specific charge to Titus. He, he, He zeroes in in verse 15, but it's one that we must apply because his grace warrants proclamation. Paul, has, he's, he's been zeroing in on God's grace. Christ appeared bringing salvation. You need a change, right? You're going to be growing in sanctification. And then he's going to drive us to this idea that these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. And don't miss that. He wants you to do it with authority. And he wants to make sure that you don't let the pressure and the peer pressure and the implication and how the world thinks about you change how you preach Christ. We must authoritatively communicate continually. How about a bunch of words in a row? With authority, communicating, we are not sitting on the sidelines. We are not sitting quiet. We are not given permission to be quiet. You wonder, oh, look at the monks. They would be off in the distance and they would focus. They're not doing what God called them to do. God called you to communicate. You have to be out in and among the world being his light. And you're supposed to do it continually. And it's seen in the reality that we're to be preaching. That's the word that's translated speak there. It's talking of announcing something. So it's speech that announces, it makes known, it reveals truth to people. It is pointing to preaching that makes clear the knowledge of truth. As we sit every Sunday morning and as we walk through his word, we're trying to make very abundantly clear what the truth is, what is being said from God's word. And then the depth of that call is made obvious because we're to be exhorting. And exhortation is this idea that you apply clear truth to one's life. It is entreating and pleading with people to not only understand but actively believe God's truth. So it's not just, I know what the Bible says, it's I believe what the Bible says, and if you're actively believing, I think you can pick up on what we're saying, that that belief will alter your actions. And so you will be, as we said before, His grace demands change, and His grace is going to 
push us towards sanctification, you have to understand that you are actively believing that's exhortation. Hey, let's live out the truth that we understand. You're going to preach truth, and then you're going to exhort people to engage with that truth. You might say, well, great, Kenny, that's what you have to do on Sundays. No, that's what we all have to do all the time. Paul hasn't shifted away from this. And then that pleading is also applied when the action to be done requires correction. It's one thing to preach truth and, and, and then the next level of things to say, I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to, I'm going to add some pleading and, and emotion to this. I'm going to try to connect with my friends. I'm going to try to connect with my family for them to do something. And then Paul takes it another step, and, it, and it's a little bit hard. Paul continues by showing we're to be rebuking, and this is the negative side of entreating. This is the same pleading. The word has the same idea of pleading and, and prodding and trying to make uh, active faith in their life, to have active belief in the truth. But as Barclay notes, it is to convince and correct one who does not yet recognize or admit that he must turn away from what is wrong. There is the drive to do what God has said, and there is a need to correct the way you're going. And oftentimes, those two fall hand in hand. Because it's one thing to exhort somebody, and it's important to do so, but we all know it comes with rebuke. It's the harder side of an appeal, but it's absolutely necessary. Paul says to Titus, you're on the island of Crete. You want a healthy church? Then it better be preaching truth. It better be appealing that that truth is applied and lived out in life. And it's going to be a corrective force. Because here's the reality. Rarely are we standing still waiting to be nudged in the right direction. Usually we're marching confidently in the wrong direction. And someone has to step and rebuke and in the same context exhort to move in the right direction. And this is to be done without letting the world or even other believers disregard us, especially to disregard the message we are to bring. That can be difficult at times. There can be people that are enamored with a worldly ideology or it's slipped into the fabric of their life. And so they're going to hear something from God's word and it's going to bother them and they're going to resist that. And sometimes as, as human beings, we, especially as we're closer to that person, we struggle with the rebuke that needs to stay consistent and the exhortation. And Paul is telling Titus, don't be swayed. You are to speak with authority. In other words, you're coming with what God has said. We stand upon the bedrock of God's word. And then he says, let no one disregard you. Paul is saying that we are to, in every way imaginable, make this truth known and let nothing interfere with it. Nothing is to interfere with proclaiming his truth, to speaking it, to exhorting it, to rebuking because of it. As MacArthur notes, God's truth is to be proclaimed with authority and obedience to it demanded in the church, not asked demanded. Paul is not leaving room for us to be an open discussion on whether or not we should apply God's truth to our lives. It is a demand that you apply God's truth in your life, and let's not walk out the doors without having that accomplished in that context, but then broaden that. See, see the direct application to our relationships as we, we rewind a little bit. 
as we dialogue with, and this is not about being obnoxious. I think I always say this because people think, oh, I'm I'm obnoxious. I must be completing God's plan. You're not. You're not to be obnoxious. You don't need to bring something negative, but you are to be authoritative. You are not to let peer pressure sway you. Look, I think it it gets in some ways easier with peer pressure as you get older. Maybe it's because you don't care what people think. I don't know what it is. But I think about kids in school and and, and applying this truth. If you're a believer and you might say, well, Kenny, I'm just just in seventh grade. I'm just in sixth grade. I'm in ninth grade. I'm in 11th grade. But you face a lot of disregard from your friends. I know that. And Paul is calling you as a healthy Christian in a healthy church, to not let someone disregard you, to not let the peer pressure sway you. We are to be proclaiming without apology and obeying it without excuse. Then the question is this, are we? Are we proclaiming it without apology and are we obeying it without excuse? As one commentator notes, the sovereign purpose of all exhortation to holy living in Scripture is to honor and glorify God, leading to the salvation of more sinners. We are here for His purpose. He uses our life for His purpose. His grace calls us to live for His kingdom purpose, to live in the reality of His most amazing salvation, to change our behavior, change our character to align with His, to eagerly look for His return which is the fulfillment of our guaranteed hope, to be growing in him consistently and to be making him known boldly and constantly. And this is the closing question. Have we responded to his grace as we should? Have we responded to his grace as we should? Are we, as his children, living out our faith as Christ has demanded, commanded it be done? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together, uh, to study your word, to, to dive in. And we see here in, in a very uh, short segment that Paul highlights the necessity of seeing your grace, to recognize the implication of Christ coming to earth, bringing salvation, to understand that your grace demands us to change, that his grace calls us to sanctification, his grace points to the blessed return of our Savior. It gives us our focus in life. It gives us a driving uh, need to live for you, to say no to this world and to say yes to living for your kingdom purpose. I hope that every life here, as, as we go through this, we are reminded constantly of what Christ has done for us, that we never lose the wonder of you on the cross of seeing our Lord and Savior dying in our place, bearing the horrific weight of sin so that you can buy us back from a wicked choice that we made, that you could give us eternal life. I hope that none of us can wake up and forget that. I hope that it is constant on our mind. And if we're struggling with remembering that, I hope, Lord, that you'll uh, convict to bring it to mind And then to take that amazing gift of salvation and make sure it permeates every aspect of life. And so as we interact with the world around us, as we engage in different circumstances, we are constantly thinking of the reality of being your redeemed, of belonging to you, 
of being a unique set-apart people for you and, and making sure that everything we do honors and glorifies you, that our life is changed, and maybe it, it feels uncomfortable in this world at times uh, to live as you have designed us and called us to live, but that we step up and do that, that we live out fully and completely and brightly your grace, and that the world around us sees your amazing salvation, and that they're not enamored with what we do or weirded out by what we do, but instead they are pointed to you uh, to seek the only salvation from their eternal destiny. In your precious and holy name, amen.